from an ego perspective and a confidence perspective and a living into your brilliance perspective, becoming a better version of yourself with a full acceptance of the value that you've already created is a solid psychological foundation. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of the Live Into Your Brilliance podcast, the place where we shine a light on the innate brilliance of the human condition whilst have a lot of fun blowing up illusions that get in our way. As always, you've got your, what we like to think of ourselves as the dynamic duo, myself, Al Kenny, and my brother in arms, Mark Billows Bilby, who uh, this week, unfortunately, is not live with me, but he is in the UK. He's down in London. Mark, how are you, brother? I'm good, my friend. I am. I miss not being up in the uh, Manchester studio, <laughs> but um, I'm delighted to say that I'm uh, alive and well and broadcasting from my Airbnb in uh, in Islington. Lovely. The the digital nomad adventures continue. Well. We have a very special guest with us this week, um, someone who uh, myself and Mark have known uh, for, gosh, I think I was looking back for the best part of 14 years through work that he did with us uh, whilst we were both at Mimecast. Um, so today we're joined by Dr. Chris Shambrook, uh, who was the sports psychologist for Great Britain's Olympic rowing team for 22 years uh, across five Olympics. And if anyone knows the British Olympic rowing team, they'll know that they were pretty spectacularly successful during that time. Um, he's also the co-author of Perform, How to Get Better at What You Do by Obsessing Over the Right Things. And uh, Chris is the group performance director of a company called Planet K2. And this is where myself and Mark got to know Chris. Um, Planet K2 is a company that have been helping uh, uh, companies across 30 countries and six continents to tap into the highest levels of human performance um, and turn performance into a force for good, uh, and as well as supporting athletes and coaches to achieve gold medal success at the last six Olympics. Um, and you know, we, we had the pleasure of benefiting from Chris and his team's work and helping us to tap into the highest level of performance. So Chris, with that, it's a pleasure to have you here and uh, welcome to Live Into Your Brilliance. Uh, thanks. It's, it's great to be here. And as you say, a long, long old journey, but it's, it's, it's great to have the opportunity to sort of, you know, um, check in, have a conversation and, you know, join up at this point in the journey for all of us as well. So we're delighted to be here. Not far away from you either, because I'm in Nantwich. So, you know, we couldn't quite make being in the same studio, but we're almost in the same county, I think. Yeah, that's not bad. We'll have to, we'll make the most of that, uh, the fact that you're up here more often uh, in the future, definitely. Um, Chris, you know, the way that we run, it's super um, an informal, I guess, in many ways, conversation. But when we have a guest on, like as much as us shining the light on, um, human performance and all of those good things. We love to invite people as a starting point to hear more about our guest story and like what's been your personal journey, like your major insights and awakenings, things you've come to see along that road. And then from there, we'll see where the conversation goes. But maybe you can kind of, it's a, I'm sure people listening are thinking, wow, there's got to be, there's some, there's some real stories in there. So I'd love to, if you, you pick wherever feels right to you for you to start, but, uh, We'd love to hear um, more about that journey. Yeah, I, you know, so I, I, I guess, yeah, that, that it's 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 interesting because trying to sort of you know tell the story backwards when you know that there was no plan. And Keith, who set up Planet K two, talks about this a lot. You know, it's easy to make sense when you kind of reverse order, but there was no actually, you know, there wasn't really the plot necessarily from the outset. But if you know, I I grew up with a passion for sport. I played a lot of sport. I did a sports science degree. I did a PhD in in sports psychology. It you know, the, going from the performer to the kind of psychologist and fascinated with the mind and human performance, and then getting the chance to work in a number of high performance sporting organisations from about 1996 onwards. That, that was just great for me because it, it gave me the opportunity to engage with sport in a way where I could seek to add value, be around amazing people, but also probably vicariously live out a lot of the things that earlier I'd have wanted to be the one sort of on the field of play. It, it was great to be very involved and involved in the, the thinking behind the performance, even if I was a frustrated performer and couldn't be there myself. But very much a sport, Billy, you know, 
pretty decent at everything, but not excelling at, at sort of, you know, the performance side, but definitely found my niche where I could excel with understanding the psychology behavior, but also translating concepts of theory into pretty practical, applicable things that people could use either in sport or business, wherever. So, yeah, I, I had the chance to test out a lot of sort of basic theory with some amazing people early in my career and just enjoyed the curiosity to sort of see what I could get away with next, I guess, <laughs> or see what would make an impact. And Chris, um, when you when you kind of dive straight in after getting the PhD and, and being and sort of having the opportunity to, to go and work with these high-performing teams, did you sort of walk in the door with a uh, a perspective or a hypothesis that that and and illusions that got blown up straight away? I I think I walked in with a high degree of trepidation. So I was about 27, 28 when I got the row the British rowing job. So Steve Redgrave was going for his fifth Olympic gold medal. Um so I pretty much knew straight away he probably had more to offer me than vice versa. Um, but I, th- I think one of the early things that got blown up for me, or not necessarily blown up, but was an important thing for me, was one of the coaches, I was young and keen and eager and sort of said, what can I do for you and your squad? And the coach turned around and said to me, well, you're the expert. You tell me what you can do for me. And 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 it, w- it was a very quick introduction to that level of requirement at that level to you're not going to get places by being a pleaser. You are going to get places by demonstrating the value of what you know and being able to communicate that in a way that people are likely to build on. So, so that, that for me was a very quick blowing up of the myth of psychology, uh, you know, being something where you helped people find their solution. This moved very quickly into a, give people something to work with in order to then see how it fits for them. So much, much more of a, you know, custom fit rather than, you know, a very humanistic approach of you have the answers within you if only I ask the right questions for you to find them. And and, and there's merit in that approach, but in a results-focused, high-performance environment like sport, people want to cut through a lot of the let's explore with openness. (laughs) Right, where... Give, give us a head start here, which head start was the company of my, uh, the name of my original sports side company as well, which I quite like the double meaning. But, um, but, but then I realized that I needed to actually live, live it rather than just have a nice name that didn't mean anything. Yeah. So that, I mean, that immediately begs the question, like, what did you do? I mean, you walk in, you're this young sort of PhD expert, supposedly, you're dealing with the British rowing Olympic team. You're, you're dealing with one of the legends of the sport. Like, what do you bring to the table? What did you, how did you approach that? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening will be like, I don't even know what a sports psychologist does. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've kind of paralleled it over the last 20 years or so with, with leaders going into leadership roles where they've never led before, where they've been given an opportunity to kind of, you know, take on a, uh, a new new area, something. There's an initiative that's been created, and they're being asked to lead for the first time. And I guess, I get guess what I did was for, I was I was in the fortunate position where because of my PhD supervisor being a very good applied psychologist, I'd co-authored a book with him. So that that really helped. Having thought about what do we from a book writing perspective want to deliver for an audience that we think will give them value pretty quickly where there isn't anyone there to guide them with, you know, asking the questions, giving the solutions. So so that allowed me to take that, the confidence from having done that to say, right, I need to do an equivalent of this in this environment, but where there's actually a live audience rather than a single reader that I've got in mind. So this was, right, how do I create something of a curriculum? How do I create something of a, of a step through learning process that I say, right, I know the skills that we really need to make sure are in good shape. I'm going to take you through a series of conversations and we'll build the foundational understanding of those things and then we'll start cranking up how we make use of them individually and collectively. And that was the nice thing in rowing. You've always got the individual performer, but then 
there's only, there's only a couple of them in the squad rowing a boat on their own. Everyone else has to work out how does this psychology work in a collective where we're totally interdependent. So that that for me was how I took it on and said, right, I need I need some type of step by step provision of expertise so that we can collaborate with a shared agenda. So that was the first thing, right? My book was an agenda that I'd created with someone I wouldn't get to meet. This was an agenda that I needed to create, to collaborate, to bring understanding and learning. So it was using some existing skills. The skill set wasn't huge, but it was at least a stepping stone to say, how do I make sense and build from a position that, that at least I had confidence that I could construct something that would make sense and uh, give us a foundation to go from. Um, you said something there which really caught my ear, you know, that talking to the individuals and then the individuals in the context of team. Um, Mark and I had, uh, we, we had the pleasure of um, hosting like a leadership group in the past week, which was uh, a lovely experience. And, and but as part of that, we were having the conversation with them around, there's always individuals and then there's the team. And I'm really curious, like what, when you said you had to put factors on the table to help people see like, this is, this is what we want to think about from an individual perspective. And then this is how we think about that in the context of team. And, and it, you can take this kind of over whatever spectrum of time or whatever your insight is, but how, what do you see is true about that or not? And how do you, like, how do you help performers, whether it's athletes or business folks, to start to see, like, what, what, what do you help them see about that? So, so increasingly, and we can sort of <clears throat> expand this out as well from, you know, being a team in what was a normal work environment five years ago into hybrid teams, into all sorts of asynchronous teams, you know, there's, there's different versions of team. What's increasingly clear is that if someone wants to progress in most areas of life, you have to be very good at developing your skill set of working in collaboration with others. And that and that's not normally something that we get explicitly taught and delivered. We're, we're given individual subject matter expertise. We're given individual, you know, individually we learn our trade. But actually, if our trade is of value, we all need to be helped in developing the skill of collaboration, working, you know, with um, uh, a, a sense of self-importance, but importance of others, um, and, and seeking to find out how good we can be at bringing our expertise alive with other people, but also through other people. So I, I think there's a skill set thing here that I believe is missing but if we just look at the basic requirements of performing and succeeding in the business world, are we doing people a disservice by not actually systematically including in every performance improvement program, you know, evidence that you're getting better at teaming, being an individual? So and there's a really interesting thing in rowing selection. It's called seat racing. So what the coaches do is they'll get sort of three or four boats with, you know, so let's say there's four people in each boat. They'll race them down 1,500 metres or 2,000 metres. They'll then give the athletes recovery, but they will change one person per boat and you race again. And with a matrix system, the coaches can work out who makes boats go fastest by making certain changes. So, and that's what we want in the business world. We want people who are the people who consistently, when they join a team, there is more than just them turning up and being another body weight to carry. They are, they are actually using their expertise from a, a and, and who they are to add value to that collective. And, and that's where I think, you know, we're missing out the, the opportunity to help people be more confident that not only am I a great individual, but I have all the requisite skills for me to contribute to any whole that I'm part of being greater than the sum of the parts. And, and, and whether I do that virtually, whether I do that hybrid wise, whether, you know, however I do that, uh, it, it will be helpful for me to be developed in those skills. And that's where I think there's some really fascinating stuff to kind of go, what's some of that shared skill set that we can give to everyone because it is a shared need, but we still need the individual brilliance for people to then be able to sort of get the alchemy to make it all work together. Do you think um, 
people show up uh, predominantly with the sort of that sort of subjective reality, like this is what I'm good at. This is where you know I bring my the the highest and best contribution, the highest value, blah blah blah, and and then when they when they sometimes see that being being invested in making the whole greater than the sum of the parts and bringing their considerable brilliance for the benefit of the, of the collective there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets in the way and they 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 recoil from that yeah yeah i said there's a whole you know the it, it is really interesting in a high performance context because you you inevitably end up with people with incredibly high egos and probably need for those egos to be looked after, which is a very individualistic thing. Um, but then you need all these high egos to be equally amazing at parking their egos for the greater good. And, 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 and I, lo- I love the challenge of that because... That's where I've sort of over the last few years have really enjoyed playing with the fact that you've you've all got high egos. We now need to work out who is the best amongst you at collaborating and making everyone else better. Um, so come on, who's the best here at collaborating? So you play to the ego with the greater good in mind. Um, you know, and it go, that goes back to classic stuff that Phil Jackson was doing with Michael Jordan, saying, "Jordan, you're a brilliant individual, but until you're able to make the people around you better, you know, that you're not really a great. You're just a great individual." Um, and you know, I, 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 I think he, he was he, he kind of got okay at that, but I don't think he had a particular nuance to how he got other people to get better. It was just like, <laughs> follow me and do what I do what I tell you and we'll, and we'll be good. You know, he, he could put the ball <laughs> in the hoop any number of ways, but he could lead in one way. So, you know, that, 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 but, but that, but that's where I think it's quite interesting because we say, but I think you've just got to be upfront from the outset. We, we want to solve this problem together of having real high egos that we're going to find out how well we can get them to collaborate because we don't have to interrogate this too much before we realize that none of us can be as good as we'd like to be without actually relying on other people. You know, we just all got to secretly think it was us that made the difference. <laughs> but how, how does that sort of translate? I, 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 see, I see it very clearly uh, you know, if you're in an eight or if you're on a basketball team, but, but in the corporate world, you know, somebody's like, well, I'm brilliant. I bring what I bring. And then if, and then I move on to the next one, you know, I, I can jump teams more easily than it is to sort of jump out of a, a British Olympic eight. So, so how does that sort of translate? Yeah. So, so that, that's where, so, so it's really interesting in the corporate context as well, because over the last few years, I've been asking people, how many different teams are they on? And, and, and the numbers are, you know, they're not that surprising when you work in the corporate world, but I think people get surprised when they stop and add up how many it actually is. Because then you have the conversation of, well, you know, how many of those teams would you say that you're performing at your best on, and how many of those teams are performing at their best, and what, and, and the ones that perform at their best and you perform at your best, what's going on there, and what's the delta between the best and the worst, and you know, you're the common denominator in all of these teams, you know, are you adapting sufficiently? Because again, I think that's part of the challenge. You are going to be reporting to multiple teams. We need to support you to bring your brilliance to as many of them as possible. It's incumbent upon you to be excellent at bringing your best self, but it's incumbent upon the leaders and how we do team around here to make it as easy as possible for all of us to aggregate our brilliance together. So so there's a structural thing of do we set teams up to allow the individuals to thrive and collaborate? And are all the teams thinking about, I want to play my part in this collaborative effort where the whole where we know the whole being greater than the sum of the part is success as well as what we achieve as a result of that togetherness that we have and that that's where i think we just need to face the reality of you know we need to help people environmentally and individually solve this problem of multiple teaming Hmm. do you think in a sporting context like there's a couple of things in there this idea that we are the common denominator in everything that we do. 
seems so powerful to me that I think it's easy, so easy to miss that where people are like, oh, no, I'm not. It's like, no, you, you really are the, the single consistent factor in your life. Um, do you think in sport that that's just much more explicitly understood by everyone that like, oh, I am the common denominator. And so I've, I can, I've got to really, oh, that, that's, that's more um, well understood or is it just equally as misunderstood? Because to me, that's one of the biggest opportunities for any human being is to really see the power in that possibility. Yeah. So, so, so I, I think in sport with the, with, with the ratio between training and competition and actually being in the spotlight in competition much more often, you know, I, I think that sharpens everyone's focus on what do I need to do to step into the spotlight again to make sure that my performance is going to be as good as possible. And 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 sometimes, you know, because I don't think sport necessarily does great team formation, but you get a lot of situations where lots of individuals with high egos are very motivated not to be the one who screws up or lets other people down. So, so, I, so I think there is some of that individuality is there that sort of says, I'm going to make sure I'm not the common denominator of lots of mistakes. But equally, I have, I have growth. So that's in the absence of that collective structure around you. Um, and, and, and I do think that there is a lot of what's done through training, which is actually about trying to close the gap between best and worst performances. So how do we make your best day better and how do we make your worst day least bad so that and if we can get if we can get that gap closing but everything tracking higher we can help you make sure that there's a greater certainty that you know a bad day isn't going to be an awful one. So so I th- I think there's a lot of the training process tries to allow a sense of confidence in predictability of levels of performance to 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 settle within you much more readily. I, I know what it's going to look like. I think in the business world, there isn't so much of a focus on that. How do you close the gap between the best day and the worst day? And how do you make sure that you actually enjoy the chance to use the different teams as a way of building that so that you are a common denominator, which is consistent, reliable, known, trusted, source of confidence, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I, 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 think, I think that the, the solution to the problems are always present. We just haven't necessarily put them all together to to then create a compelling narrative as to this is going to make your life feel a lot easier if you go down this route. Because it is quite threatening that you're the common denominator of all of your all of the dysfunctional teams as well as the functional ones. <laughs> um, but there's some differences going on there. What what do you think gets in the way in business? If you go back to the difference between performance and results. The desire to cut to result and be guaranteed a result gets in the way of doing the performance steps that would increase your likelihood of performing in such a way that the results would follow. So because business tends to go fire, aim, ready, rather than aim, ready, fire, or business tends to go fire, 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 and then sometimes if it doesn't go well, you do get fired. So, you know, it's kind of, (laughs) there's, um, uh, I I think that that sort of um, it that real need for result and everything hanging on it and the obsession with it does get in the way of doing the calm, considered approach to creating team structure that would allow performance collaboratively and individually to unite to maximise the chances of success. Um, and there's you know the Navy SEALs concept of sort of um, Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Business just tries to go fast without going slow and smooth by setting things up, particularly with senior people who have got big salaries and important titles and CVs. Well, I don't need to tell you what to do, and it would be patronizing of me to do so, wouldn't it? You're a leader, so there's no point us doing this very detailed stating of the obvious about how we unite and play effectively together. But that that desire not to patronize gets in the way of absolutely creating the right version of team for now. You end up with lots of assumed versions where each individual on the team assumes that 
we're playing to my game plan. But we've never had that conversation and telepathy tends not to work whatever environment you're in. But Chris, over the decades, because we, we had uh, Amy Jen Sue on uh, the the show uh, last week and you know she's she has written quite a lot about this the the need to cultivate self-awareness at the heart of of transforming an organization and i would love to get your perspective what have you seen over the decades has there been a shift and and what are the things that are slowly being blown up because it allows now for people to acknowledge that there is a way to show up more consistently that narrows the gap between the the bad days and the good days. Right. Yeah. So, so this is, so I, I was, I had a fascinating chat with a prof at UCL a few weeks ago, a guy called Stephen Fleming, who's written some stuff on self-awareness and, and, um, so the, so the, the self-awareness bit for me falls down if you don't have self-acceptance. Um, and, and, it, and fascinatingly people high in self-awareness tend to be lower in confidence because the more self-aware you are the more you might realize what your limitations are so your your confidence becomes more fragile that's why i think the self-acceptance piece is absolutely critical because if i raise your awareness of the qualities that you possess and i can help you do i can help you make uh, get a value acceptance picture of those qualities Let's not say whether they're good or bad. Let's just look for what is the value of you being aware that these are characteristics, skills, knowledge, experience that you possess. Now with that acceptance, what do we need to do to help you utilize those existing qualities as well as possible in the current context? And how do we help you grow those qualities intentionally so the things that you're aware of, bit you, bit you make, greater use of them and the awareness that you get where there's an opportunity to add new things that aren't present we can add those to a solid uh, aware and accepted sense of self but a lot of the time awareness leads to self-criticism so i i I tend to use self-awareness self-acceptance and self-development most people cut from self-awareness to self-development, which means that I am aware of what I'm like and I now need to become more like other people rather than less like myself. So that's not a healthy place to be developing from. So the acceptance in the middle helps us get to a position of I'm aware, I'm accepting, I'm, I'm developing by magnifying what is known and accepted to be valuable and I'm adding so and I'm strengthening by uh, expanding those things as well from an ego perspective and a confidence perspective and a living into your brilliance perspective becoming a better version of yourself with a full acceptance of the value that you've already created is a solid psychological foundation there's a lot of the other stuff for me creates instability in the psychological foundation so people are worried because then they become more focused on what isn't there rather than celebrating and building from what is there um, so that that and only if you get that in a team where everyone is bringing that self-accepted version of their awareness to aggregate to deliver a problem that couldn't be solved individually, now you get support and challenge from a position of strength and curiosity, which changes the game. I wonder how much better we can be together, rather than I wonder if any of us are good enough. Love that. I love the thr- the 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 trinity between acceptance, awareness, and development. Would you say that self-acceptance is similar to self-love? Or, like, I don't know if that's a a term or phrase that you would use in your vernacular. Depends if you're talking to a narcissist, I guess. But but no, I think that the the self-love, self-compassion, self-acceptance, look at at those as very complementary concepts. Because, uh, you know, I, I'll talk to people about, you know, how many times have you had a personality assessment done and and how many times have you sat and looked through that and, and with the lens of, I'm going to read this to find out what I should really love about myself or what I should really be proud of in terms of the personality qualities that this tool is telling me are naturally me. Because people haven't done it. They don't do that self-love. And if you look at... Um, uh, Christine Neff's work on self-compassion, 
and you know her three elements of have self-kindness rather than self-judgment. So that's the kind of love, acceptance, you know, piece in there. She says, uh, focus on common humanity where we're more like each other rather than, well, this test says I'm not like everyone else. But as you know, push back on that. Self-kindness, more, you know, more similar than dissimilar, and I can now be mindful. So the mindfulness piece adds an opportunity to be in the moment with an understanding of this is how most people would be thinking and feeling, and I can do it from a position of self-kindness to see how well I can grow. So that think about the, the compassion, acceptance, love as very kind of complementary elements of all of that, where you know, um, practicing that as a starting position, I'm going to seek to really love what I know to be true. And, and I might know that, part of me is being a perfectionist. So I can love the fact that I am a perfectionist because I will, you know, enjoy that. And then I will love being able to use that perfectionism to add value to what is now a base that I'm proud to have rather than just cutting straight to maladaptive perfectionism where I'm just amazing at criticizing myself and ignoring all of the things I'm actually brilliant. So Chris, my, yeah, my, the follow on that I do have to that is I, the way you've just described it there, particularly around perfectionism, the bit I, I kind of attempted to put a stick of dynamite is into the idea of conditional self-acceptance or self-love. Like that's how it seems to me that people set things up. It's like, I love myself if I'm doing well, but I have to judge myself when I'm not versus there is no world in which you are perfect. And so self-acceptance for me comes from letting go of the idea that we have to put conditions on our um, self-compassion, self-kindness, self-acceptance. Yeah, yeah. And if, 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 we, if we kind of go back to, you know, Albert Ellis's work, just brilliant sort of rationally emotive behavior therapy, seeking to help people have unconditional self-acceptance type relationships with themselves, that's that's a lot of REBT work. I'm going to challenge some of the beliefs and I'm going to challenge some of the rules that you've put in place that I can only love me if, you know, or I must achieve this before I can be, you know, a, a successful person. Um, the REBT folks talk about, you know, the perils of masturbation. Um, you know, I, I must do this. I must achieve this. I must be a better person. You know, don't steer clear of the musts, the needs, the shoulds, the oughts. Because actually they close down what I talked about earlier about that curiosity, which is, I wonder how much better I can be at this. I wonder what my level of capability is if I just stay curious. I wonder how differently I'll feel about myself when I hit a new level of this thing. Rather than what we learn at school is you're only a good person if your grade point sits at, you know, within a certain band. But and we'll start from a hundred and we'll mark you down rather than as a human, if we start from zero and just be curious as about to what level we might get to in anything and, and we might create a a new threshold for other people to aspire to, because the existing threshold might be inappropriate. So there's kind of this you know, when when do we need that discovery curiosity mindset? And when can we use the standards that are set by other people to be informative, to give us a reference point? But this is where, you know, I, I don't agree with the stuff about comparison is the thief of joy. It depends what you compare yourself with and to. Comparison could be actually the fuel for joy. Um. You just have to be really smart at using comparison in the right way at the right time from the from a starting point that you know and accept. But that that that, that Al, I think, is where there's a really good opportunity to just kind of think about perfect is a verb, not a noun. So I'm I'm perfecting anything. Per perfect doesn't really exist other than in a grammatical form as as a noun. Um, but to perfect my understanding of myself and to perfect my ability to use the gifts that I've been given, my ability to perfect my capacity to learn from other people's role modeling of things that I aspire to have for myself, 
that feels to me like a much more generous, self-compassionate approach to discovering what you might be able to achieve as a human. Chris, I've, I've going, or I'd love to go back to something you said earlier about you know um, showing up with a, a real curiosity around how you can make uh, the team phenomenal. Um, and and you know the and the way in which you play with that in order to draw the the phenomenal side out of whether it's an athlete or or an executive or what have you, but it, that brings me straight to the subject of trust. In you know when you when you're when you're showing up and and you're the hired gun and you've got you've got faith in in your ability, that's one thing, but then to pour that energy and that creativity into the team. And develop that sense of connection so that you can have healthy debates and you can commit and hold each other accountable. How how do you think about trust and 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 getting teams, whether sports or corporate, to build on that? I can't re- I can't remember whose original trust equation it is, but I I use consistently the moment uh, at the moment the trust equation that trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, how well we know each other, divided by um, self-orientation. And so if you if you have too much self-orientation, it doesn't really matter how, how well someone knows you, how reliable you are, or how credible you are, because you know, the, the trust is gone. So from a team perspective, what I'm using at the moment is that equation, but I'm getting rid of the self-orientation and in, so credibility, reliability, and intimacy is in brackets, and shared orientation is now the multiplier. Ah. So if we start with what is it that we are trying to achieve together that we can only achieve by working brilliantly together, and therefore for each of us individually, what credibility do we need to bring to the table to help fuel the pursuit of that collective objective? What reliability is going to be really helpful for us to consistently demonstrate through our pursuit of the, the shared success we're after? And what do you, what do we need to know about each other as people about how we like to show up and, you know, and how, and, and how some of our, you know, personality and, and personal needs are, are influence our ability to contribute. But if we can talk about that stuff up front and we create the team from that starting point, we're then in a process of saying, so everything that we do and every and how we behave keeps checking in with, are we building the, real, the, the required credibility? Are we staying true to our reliability? And are we getting to know the things about how to work with each other that means that intimacy is a power for good? But this is about a consistent behaving our way forward. So the trust element is grown. But we want to keep doing that. We don't want to wait for trust to be compromised before we start fixing it. We just kind of go, won't it be great if we just keep the credibility, reliability, and knowledge becoming ever more useful for us? So that that that's how it works for me. You start with that collective reference point and make sure everyone is really clear about how do we bring what we've done before to the table in this situation where we're trying to achieve this in this unique bit of alchemy that is the individuals who are here, but we're not going to do any assumptions. We, we're going to create this together and enjoy creating it together rather than we've all done this kind of thing before. We know the end game, right? Crack on and don't get in each other's way or at least play nicely. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but then it's about ego and assumption rather than that beautiful creation of a shared mental model that allows us to behave our way into ever more confident and trusting performance. I love that. I, I really do love that. And I think what what I love most about that is what what that sort of shared consciousness about the objective brings to the table is it instantly blows up all of the attachments and beliefs that prevent us from being all in in the first place. When yeah, you're focusing yeah. on that, you're present to that. It kind of puts a stick of dynamite in in the in the baggage we carry to the table in the first place. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I keep getting very frustrated when we go and talk to teams about teamwork and they say, oh, we've recently done some stuff on Lencioni's five dysfunctions of teams. I go, that's amazing. How many more times do you have to live in a dysfunctional team before you set one up in the first place to not be dysfunctional? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just such a waste of time. We know the dysfunction. We know how to fix them. So let's set it up properly in the first place so we don't need Lencioni's bottle to come and rescue us again from having made the same mistakes again because we didn't set it up properly. It, you know, it's, not, it's not particularly high intelligence as far as I see. <laughs> so that begs the question for me then. And Chris, how, like over the years, 21 years, Planet K2. and So I'm sitting here and I imagine the Mark is and anyone listening going, yeah, bloody hell, let's do that. Like let's, Let's set it up right the first time. And I'm like, so what is it? What yeah. is it that keeps tripping people up that, that we just somehow like seem to consistently forget? Because I don't think there's anyone who's going to listen that goes, geez, I, I don't want that. I think there's some people who are like, I want that. And I'm just, I'm almost like trying to put my finger on the, what is it that we either keep forgetting or keep tripping up on and going, oh, there is again. I've tripped over that 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 route. Yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 it is interesting because it's why psychological safety is the flavour of the month at the moment. But again, if you set a team up properly in the first place, you create the safety together going forward, and you talk about the fact that an output of being a great team that's set up well is we feel safe to bring our best selves as, and we feel a whole bunch of other qualities that also advance a team's performance but it's like you know homer simpson and beer you know it's the problem it's the it's the cause of and solution to all of his problems psychological safety is the same thing for corporate teams at the moment but but what what the issue is al is i think that that there is in sport there is a very clear understanding that performance is getting ready and preparing better than the opposition it's performing and playing better than the opposition when we're face to face and it is um, recovering and learning better than the opposition. All of those things are performance. It isn't just going out on the field of play and hoping and wishing that we kind of get something similar to our last competitive set of behaviours that we demonstrated. If in the corporate world we could bake in much more an equal obsession with the desire to prepare in the way that we know is commensurate with the level of ambition that we've got, then we'd be good because that would then allow us to feed the desire to execute and, and play the game commensurate with the level of ambition that we've got and at the standard that we demand. And we would then make sure that we learned and fed forward and recovered with the same diligence. But I, th I think, you know, in the simplest form, if we project manage the team's excellence, You'd want to have all of the phases on the project management, the preparation phase and what that looks like from a ta strategic, tactical and human level, the performance phase, the, the, the after the results are in phase. Project manage the whole thing, but include people at the heart of it and don't think that a nice process is going to be enough to actually capture the hearts and minds and get people doing it. Because we talk about process efficiency and systems and structures and process, but the missing bit is people having been given the time to internalize that, fall in love with it for the right reasons, and then want to stay motivated to actually follow the thing through. It's the difference between driving a process that you're motivated to be part of rather than complying with something that you've been told you need to do. And, you know, some of those differences are, 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 Deadly simple, but incredibly hard to get the priorities focused on them. Is it the illusion of time that screws people up where they're like, oh, I kind of want, I, I see that and I want that and I know it'll make a difference. And maybe this links also to what you said before about like the obsession with results. Is the illusion that we don't have time? So that all sounds great. We don't have the time to do that because we're too busy it, it, with the business of 
chasing results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it is. It is the. It is the inability to commit to the use of time that would be most valuable, uh, and and so you get people committing inadvertently to investing time in post-mortems for when things haven't gone as well as they could do. So, okay, so you're happy to make time when it's all gone to pot. Uh, and that, again, is just why. But you're not happy to do the upfront work that would probably be less time than you all doing the corporate dance of showing that you care about a missed, a missed result. Let's go back and spend the time creating the reference point to then go faster. But I think it's, it's, the, it's the result obsession. Mustn't fail, mustn't fail, mustn't fail. Cut to action, cut to action. No, cut to preparation, then cut to action, then cut to you know somewhat more of a controlled, considered use of your strengths and playing, you know, maximizing the likelihood through risk and reward that you're going to get the kind of thing that will not only deliver now, but will probably set you up better for the future. Because the other the other thing that, you know, we've, we've talked about this loads in the past, with the approach where you ha- are results obsessed, you focus on errors, you then remove the errors and you get better at not having a bad day. You don't get better at having a good day. But actually what people want is they want to have more of the good days more of the time because that makes it easier to be, you know, the heroes and heroines with a positive scorecard. But if you only get better at having a bad day by missing the preparation, again, it's just a false economy of time. So how how do we get after that, Chris? I mean, like, you know, you think about as individuals and people listening to this podcast, like, how do you lean into that and rather than waste the time, the effort, the energy on fixing you you confidently pour the time, the energy into preparing and and making sure it's good from the outset. Like, wh- why is that something we just don't carry into most aspects of our lives? Yeah, I, th- I think it probably needs translating into something that is done by stealth. Because yeah, if you look at agile as a method, you know, pe- people people are like, oh, agile, it's brilliant, isn't it? But, but it's a systematic set of rhythms and rituals that everyone buys into because ultimately they realise it makes their life easy. And, and and I think we kind of need to think about what what are some of the valued rhythms and rituals that as an organisation, because of our vision because of our values these are rhythms and rituals that we never walk by because we know they give us the chance to have the conversations and you know uh, collate our ambitions and and make sure that we are giving ourselves the best chance of doing what we say we want to do so I, i think it's actually just getting down to that more behavioral level of can we bake in the rhythms and the rituals and people see the value of them but we make it easy to do it. We build it in. We see it as work. We see the preparation as as important as the execution stages that we get in. Yeah, and and so can we get it to a behavioral, habitual, ritualized level where within a culture we value these things? They become part of how we do stuff. But it, but it's about it's about connecting hearts and minds and brilliance rather than focusing everything on activities and reporting on key performance indicators that are nothing like key performance indicators. They're just, there are other targets that we want people to hit. A key performance indicator is how good are you at your regular check-in where you prepare for the week ahead. If If you can prepare more and more effectively, that's a performance indicator that is probably going to show up pretty well on the final scoreboard. Yeah, so I th- so I you know I believe a lot of the right intention and right ingredients are in play. They're just not joined up in such a way that we allow people to use them to remove noise from their head and maximize potential. Again, that's another you know Tim Galway's equation: performance is potential minus interference. Do we systematically help people remove interference by preparing consistently and together? And do we help people maximize potential by building on strengths and focusing on the right next strength to develop as well? 
Yeah. So I, I think it is about translating it into that kind of cultural familiarity of just like, you can't stop us doing this now because it feels so important to help us go forward with confidence, togetherness, and a sense of control as well. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, the, the very best things I think do sound simple. doesn't mean they're easy. That's the problem, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's as simple as sometimes it is hard and sometimes it's easy, but it does strike me the bit you said there, like you, you get a feel for it. You get a taste for it. Like it, that strikes me as part of what we're saying to people is, you know, if you take a chance on this, and I think everyone knows the feeling of what it feels like to be a part of a team and, or to be in a place in their personal lives where it's, it's been hooked up. And what we're saying is like, that's possible to be hooked up more of the time if we're prepared to invest ourselves in that possibility up front. Up front. And, and, and that goes back to perfect rather than perfect. So, there, there, so there, there's, there's a great, there's a Professor Christian Swan, he, he's, uh, he's uh, one of the uh, University of Queensland, I think. So Christian, over the last few years, has done some great work on the, the value of open goals. It's typically around exercise and exercise habits, but it works for anything. But open goals are goals that invite you to find out what you're capable of achieving and to keep building, rather than smart goals that tell you that you've which aren't which aren't even smart, but they tell you that you've got to achieve something by a certain time and and you know that it's measurable and realistic and all of these things and they and they instantly set you up for failure. Open goals set you up for the opportunity to perfect. Given that you're pretty talented already, have a go at something and prepare and kind of go right. See how well and how long you can do thorough preparation for and evaluate how it helps you feel differently from a confidence point of view or what you see in terms of some impact that is achieved that you haven't achieved elsewhere. And having set that open goal and kind of got a bit of a baseline, be curious about what the next iteration of that might look like in terms of a performance benefit or a, or a metric that you're able to see that there's a connection with. If you do it from an exercise perspective, you kind of go, I'm going to go out for a run and I'm going to see how long I run for. And then I might, and, and I might see how many times a week I fancy running for and how often I, you know, and, and how consistently I run at a similar distance to the, to the first one that I did. We build a sense of our relationship with this thing to then see how far we want to take it. And, and and I think when we've got high performers with a track record who want to make this stuff stick for them, go with the open goals and and work out what your value is and find out what resonates with you because also conditions change and opportunity changes. But if we've got an open goal, you can be far more compassionate again to kind of go, do you know what? That was a really tough month I just did. And I was still able to do this quality of preparation. It feels like the heat's come off a bit. I wonder what I'm capable of doing now the conditions have changed. You get a, you get a much more compassionate approach to your growth, but possibility and ambition can stay unreasonably high. We've just got, we keep the patience and the curiosity as the key qualities that are driving us. Um, that, 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 it just feels so much more enjoyable to play, to see what we're possible, we see what we're capable of doing, rather than feel like we're sitting a constant exam and we're hoping that we don't fail against some criteria that is probably derived from <clears throat> some dysfunctional belief we developed in our childhood <laughs> about what being good looks like. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> do you love me yet, Daddy? <laughs> Yeah. Chris, we could I think we could chat to you for uh for an age, but I'm conscious that we're coming up to the end of our time that we scheduled for today. Um we have a closing um a tradition on the podcast, which I don't think we gave you a heads up on, but you might have got wind of it. Um, which is if you could create a bumper sticker for life, what would it say? Um How good can I be? <laughs> Question mark. Nice. Love that. 
it's, it's just a very open-ended curiosity driving you know there is i don't know the answer but just as a you know as a, as a as a question to hang out there for people yeah how how, how good can i be because chances are we haven't found out yet and chances are we'll never be satisfied with where we think we are anyway so we may as well keep asking it in something of a way that invites you know um another go brilliant yeah no i love that and i love that and love it in the yeah. oh, i love that and i what i've loved it's one word you keep using throughout the hour that we've spent together and that's curiosity and i think you know somebody said it the other day you know curiosity is the opposite of judgment now whether you believe that or not it doesn't yeah. matter it's that's just a lovely Ted, way Ted Lasso and it's brilliant yeah 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 exactly and so you know you show up with that curiosity about what you're capable of the curiosity of well if i can bring this what what can i do for the collective whole and could it be more powerful than the sum of its parts can i can i just jump in because I, I think my bumper sticker needs to be, given it's a bumper sticker on a car, it, it should be, am I there yet? But it, it's the same question. But, you know, you, you, with, you know, having carried kids in the back, you know, are we there yet? So, so am I there yet? Well, how good can I be? But it's one of those things. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But, yeah, and, and, and the thing that resonated really uh, well with me, I think, is, you know, and, and we do. I mean, we all love Lencioni and, and, and his books and his models and his fables. But I really love that. It's, it's like if you, if you approach this with a real sense of curiosity about how to get it right up front, do the preparation then we don't have to keep revisiting, wasting time on repairing the dysfunction. <laughs> and I think yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And, and it's just a lovely way to look at it. Yeah, and and to be honest, you know, if 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 a factory had the same approach to its machinery and it only waited for the machinery to become dysfunctional before it bothered, it's time to do the dysfunction repair. You know, the, the, there there would be outcry. Yeah. So that's why you have maintenance schedules and you have, you know, sort of renewal schedules. It's what you, you do those things to, to make sure that if there is any degradation in something, you stop it before it gets out of hand. So, so we can build these things in before it even gets broken. So it's, it's not difficult. Chris, if, um, People are listening to this and either like they might be like on a, in, in, their, in their own companies or on a personal level they want to get in touch with you. What's Where's the places that they should hook up with you or Planet K2 if if they're interested in that? Yes, planetk2.com is always a good place to go. But if you want some practical stuff that's kind of open source that you just want to dive into some of this stuff, if you go to theperformanceroom.co.uk, there's a whole bunch of um, this kind of stuff on there in various forms of written word, infographics, videos, you know, little things. So that go to the performanceroom.co.uk and fill your boots, you know, we'd, we'd love to see you there. And um, uh, that's probably the easiest way to access this without having to go through talking to me about it. That's awesome. Like, I hope people do that. It's um, Chris, wanted to thank you so much like it's been a thoroughly enjoyable insightful conversation it's uh you know i've mentioned to you before a a single conversation where you changed my life at a different point and opened up a whole new perspective and i just love your the depth of your sharing and capacity to see and and point to what's possible um so really uh, grateful for uh, your time and and uh and wonderful insights today. It's been a real pleasure. So uh, thank you. I don't know, Mark, any, any comments from, from your side? No, I just, just echo that, Chris. Just lovely to spend the, the hour with you. Um, have always had huge respect for the wisdom you've brought and, and certainly the way in which you helped us uh, way back when. And uh, yeah, hopefully next time we'll, we'll ship you a little cocktail and uh, enjoy a follow-up chat with you pretty soon that'd be great I, I, this is this has helped me sort of plug a couple of other bits into place for me as well so thank you for the chance to kind of be more conscious of some of what 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 really resonates for me as well so thank you for that it's been a great opportunity to share in a space that allows me to kind of 
you know, just really go for it. But I always realize stuff when I'm doing that. So thank you for the chance to do that. Awesome. No, our pleasure. And hopefully, uh, like Mark said, we might get to do it again at some point and uh, um, both on here and uh, and offline as well, which would be lovely. Um, folks, I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we have uh, benefited from the insights. And, and what I really hope for for all of us is that we not only um, have the insights, but we put them into action because that's uh, where the magic really happens. Um, but until we speak to you again have a wonderful uh, week and um, keep on living into your brilliance cheerio thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey unraveling the innate brilliance within every human being we hope today's episode has sparked new thoughts and inspired fresh perspectives remember the power to shatter illusions and unleash your true potential lies within you If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite platform. If you'd like more insights and daily doses of inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at alkennycoaching, or you can connect with myself and Mark on LinkedIn, uh, where we will share articles and perspectives about unlocking your innate brilliance. Remember, you are capable of extraordinary things. Keep believing, keep exploring, and keep shining brightly. Take care and stay brilliant.